Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to uh, this evening's highlight of our continuing Handley Page uh, centenary celebration, which began earlier this morning um, with our annual international training conference um, on the theme, A Hundred Years of Education in Aeronautics, Time for a Change. It was my pleasure to uh, introduce that uh, conference this morning. Um, I have checked with Peter, and I understand that it's been going extremely well. Um, and now um, Ian Pohl is going to uh, um, bring the day to a conclusion um, with this year's Handley Page Lecture. Um, Ian is Professor of Aerospace Engineering at Cranfield University and Business Development Director of Cranfield Aerospace Limited. He's a graduate of Imperial College. He has 30 years experience in aerospace and aviation and that was gained in both the academic and commercial domains. His career began at Hawker Siddeley Aviation before moving to the College of Aeronautics. He was appointed Professor of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Manchester in 1985 uh, and he later became Head of the Department of Engineering. In 95, he returned to Cranfield as Head of the College of Aeronautics. He's a Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, the City and Guilds Institute of London, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and, of course, the Royal Aeronautical Society. And he is a past president of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Departing from the script, um, he knows more about um, the history of aeronautics and aviation than anybody I've ever come across. Uh, and it's my great pleasure on uh, occasion um, to try to catch him out uh, in that respect. Um, in all the time that I've known him, I've only almost succeeded once. Um, he usually gets uh, the better of me by a very large margin. Um, Ian, it's a, a great pleasure um, to have you here uh, to deliver the Handley Page lecture this evening. The floor is yours. Okay, well, let me say what an, an honour and a, a pleasure it is to, to give the Handley Page lecture. Um, I, uh, I took the title Higher Education's Contribution to Aeronautics before I'd really thought about just what a big subject this, this really is. And, and of course, in, in preparing for tonight, I realised that it is not just big, it's massive. But nevertheless, um, for the next 45 minutes or so, I'm going to try and take you through my personal view of higher education's contribution. I mean, there may be, and I'm sure there are others who have very different ideas and could give a completely different talk for at least the same amount of time, if not longer. So the opinions I'm expressing are entirely my own, and the, 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 the talk is given in the spirit that it's part of a dialogue between interested parties and not just a didactic exercise of me telling you all about how it is. So we all have our different views, um, and, and hopefully after I've finished the, uh, the Magic Lanterns show, we can, we can perhaps have some questions, and we'll try and kick the, the issues around a little more. So, as Mike says, I, I, uh, I, I, I am very interested in the history of, of aeronautics, um, not necessarily because it's aeronautics, but because it, it's an excellent example of the history of all kinds of, 
technical issues and scientific issues. It's, it's a good, simple, clear example of how humans have, have set themselves targets and how over decades and centuries they've achieved things which at the outset were considered impossible and at the end become everyday and routine. As has already been said, it's, it's the Handley Page lecture. For those who don't know, Sir Frederick Handley Page, pioneer, innovator, inventor, and champion of aeronautics. He was a pioneer in the sense of building airplanes. He was an innovator in the sense of things like uh, high lift devices and laminar flow and all kinds of things were, uh, were, were tried and, and investigated by Handley Page and the Handley Page Company. He, he created a great company. Uh, he invested his life's work in it and his money in it, and he championed aerospace right through to his death in 19... <laughs> says 1862. I can see that now. I mean 1962. It's the, cent it's the centenary this year, of course, of the Hanley Page Company, first limited liability aircraft company. Very wise of them to limit their liability. Uh, I'm not quite sure you still can limit your liability these days, but uh, nevertheless, this was, this was a wise move 100 years ago. It was the first British works constructed solely for aircraft production, and for those who don't know, they were the pioneers of the big aeroplane, as illustrated here by one of the Hanley Page 0400 bombers. Here's a little montage of, of some of the aircraft. There's Hanley Page himself sitting in something. It, the wheels don't seem to be quite right, but nevertheless, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it was okay. Heavy bombers, civil transports, the HP-42, uh, Second World War, that's a Halifax. Then we go to the, the Victor bomber, the HP-115, used for research purposes for investigating delta wing flows. The Hastings transporter, the Jetstream, and this is the one in College of Aeronautics colors, of course and the Herald. Some of the aircraft, some successful, well, all, all successful in their own way, and an illustration of, of the, the variety of, of machines that were built uh, whilst the company was, was flourishing. Now, to return to higher education, higher education's contribution is, is divided into two streams. Now, clearly, there's the education part, and here... That divides into two streams, the direct and the indirect, because there are, there are educational processes under the name of aeronautical engineering, which you might describe as direct, and then there are people who study other subjects which then have an impact on aeronautics or aerospace, and that's indirect. And similarly, we have a situation for research, which over the years has been the direct application of things clearly intended for, for aeronautical use, and then the indirect, where something else comes along and eventually it gets merged into aeronautics and aerospace. So you can see straight away, this does not simplify the situation at all. It merely allows more and more into the mixing pot. Well, much as it pains me, we really ought to begin at the very beginning. And of course, the first bit of higher education that appears is Cambridge University because without Isaac Newton and his concepts for uh, mechanics, fluid mechanics, and his mathematics, we would not really be able to have aeronautics as we know it today, because, of course, it is grounded 
very firmly in Newtonian mechanics, and basically it is one of the most scientific sectors, and therefore we rely very heavily on uh, the people of the past who've done these great things. So the first higher education contribution goes to Cambridge, courtesy of Professor Newton. But then we ought to move on about a 100 years or so to Sir George Cayley, because, uh, as most of you know, Cayley is, is acknowledged as being the father of the aeroplane. Now, because he was a country squire living in Yorkshire near Scarborough and well-to-do, he was educated by tutors. So the key question is, who educated him? Who put ideas in his head and gave him the ability to think the kinds of thoughts which delivered the kinds of visions which led to modern-day aviation. Well, his first tutor was a gentleman called George Walker, fellow of the Royal Society, and Walker was president of the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society. And when I was at Manchester, I was a member of that Literary and Philosophical Society. It has been going for 200 years plus, uh, it noted amongst its members people like Benjamin Franklin. And at the time of Cayley, at the end of the uh, 18th century, it was a powerhouse of ideas, educated views, and uh, progress, and progressive ideas. And so Walker was himself highly educated, clearly in the groove as far as, as, far as uh, science and mathematics were concerned, and he was the primary influence on the young George Cayley. And again, without, without moving off track, we, we, we have to find out why Cayley was interested in flight. What was it that this education spurred off, and how did it manifest itself? Well, Cayley recognized that in the Industrial Revolution, which of course was, was uh, uh, really at... at, at uh, it started very strongly and, and it was growing rapidly. He saw that transportation was an important element in this. Uh, you needed transportation to get your raw materials to the factories and then when you'd made your products, you needed to get your uh, products to markets and that also needed transportation. And he clearly saw that road, rail and sea were limited. There was always some problem which meant that there was a difficult bit of the journey left in order to carry out the, the task. So he recognized that transport by air would remove many of the limitations of the other modes and would bring huge economic benefits. So Cayley wasn't one of these people who looked and saw birds and started flapping his arms and tried to emulate them. He wanted to make money. And this was a way of, of opening up the possibilities of, of wealth creation through aviation. He also recognized that there was military potential because, of course, this was the time of Napoleon and the tensions between uh, Britain and France were enormous. And so he could also see that there was potential there for intelligence gathering to move forces quickly over difficult terrain. And therefore, aerial navigation was clearly a means by which Napoleon could bridge the English, the English Channel. So there was recognition that there was a clear and present threat from the skies, even in 1806. So basically, these were the, these were the very sophisticated ideas that had already appeared through 
his interactions with people who were at the, the sharp end of the development of the, of the modern scientific world. And it was this that led Cayley to, to argue for the development of both offensive and defensive military systems. So by now, 200 years down the line, Cayley's vision has been brought to full realization. But his vision isn't complete. And this is where the education process needs to take us further. Because aviation has much more to offer society than the ability to haul cargo, human or otherwise, over large distances at high speed. Which until now, that's what we've been doing. We've either moved people or we've moved inert matter. But that's what it's been, a transport system. Well, it's not a transport system anymore. Transportation is a subset of what aviation really means in terms of wealth creation, quality of life, and all those other important things. And so now, 200 years down the line, we need another vision. And that's going to come from inspiring people like George Walker inspired George Cayley to think more expansively about what this whole thing is about, where the opportunities are, and how to actually achieve the benefits that are clearly there. So, I don't want to overplay Cayley. It was an enormous contribution because... It put the ideas into the public domain. It alerted others who had different skills and who could contribute in different ways to the possibilities. And although Cayley never actually achieved uh, very much in the practical sense, he, he certainly opened the door to the developments that would follow. So his contribution was recognizing that fixed-wing heavier-than-air flight was possible. And he identified the fund fundamental importance of aerodynamic lift to support weight and the need for thrust to overcome aerodynamic drag. So basically, setting the scene for all our courses in, in, in basic air vehicle design. And he managed to build and fly small gliders, and reputedly, and it doesn't really matter whether he did or he didn't have a man carrying glider, that's not the point, he actually demonstrated the principles with practical information. So he was behaving like an academic, even though he wasn't personally in an academic environment. And that's, that's something to, uh, to be pleased about and to make sure that people know about that. Because up until that point, nobody had really <laughs> produced a proper reason for why you want to fly at all. It was all a bit airy-fairy, and it wasn't really focused, and the purpose that, that for, for which it was intended had not been made clear. Okay, so let's go back to the 19th century now. So George Cayley has put out his ideas. The, the, these came out in the first half of the 19th century. At that same time, there were people in higher education who, although not necessarily working on aeronautics, were doing the basic research which would provide foundation stones for what was to come. So back to Cambridge again. Sir George Stokes was formulating the uh, equations of motion for a viscous fluid. Um, the, the attribution is normally shared with the Frenchman. I've no idea why, but they're normally called the Navier-Stokes equations. But George Stokes was, was um, working on them at Cambridge. Osborne Reynolds at Manchester was working on fluid flows in general. And in particular, Reynolds formulated the first uh, models of turbulence. 
So it was Reynolds who produced the idea of turbulence modeling, which has become really quite important of late. He also uh, worked on the problem of viscous flow transition from laminar to turbulent flow, which is also an important element in, in modern aeronautics. So Stokes and Reynolds, Reynolds being at Manchester. Sir Horace Lamb was also at Manchester. Lamb was a mathematician who uh, spent his, his professional life working on the problems of fluid mechanics. He produced a classic book, Lamb's Hydrodynamics, in something like 1880. It's still in print today. It, it encapsulates everything that they, that they knew at that time, and it's, it's, when you read this, if you ever read the papers of these characters, it's as if they were written today. They are, they write beautifully clearly, they leave nothing uh, unexplained, and it really is, the, the, the stuff that these people produced was really magnificent. So Horace Lamb, mathematician at Manchester, uh, expert in fluid mechanics, and then Lord Kelvin, William Thompson, as he was born, uh, at the University of Glasgow, and Kelvin was working on theorems of vortex motion and what have you. So, so they were working in areas which, which would become important to, to the development of the science of aeronautics. Now, towards the end of the 19th century, a debate arose concerning the practicality of aviation in the sense of powered flight. And this, I find, does not get much exposure. But actually, I think this is an extraordinarily important issue which is, which is overlooked um, and, and needs to be brought out and discussed. Now, the three people we have here, Lord Rayleigh, uh, Nobel Prize winner, Order of Merit, President of the Royal Society. He was a lord in his own right. He, didn't, he wasn't made a lord like um, uh, William Thompson, who, who, who was ennobled. Uh, Rayleigh was a baronet. He was, he was the son of a lord, and he, uh, he, he became Lord Rayleigh when, when his, his father died. And in the middle, we have Samuel Langley, an American. Now, I'm not going to really talk too much about um, the foreign contributions of higher education, but in this case, we need to, because Langley was an important person. He was the secretary of the Smithsonian. He was an astronomer. He, uh, he was awarded the Royal Society's Rumford Medal, which was the highest uh, award that they gave in the 19th century. And these three people knew each other, and they argued about flight. Kelvin was completely convinced that it was impractical, even for, even for airships. Now, heaven only knows why he felt like this. I mean, it's an irrational thing for somebody who's supposed to be a great scientist. But he basically said it was all nonsense. Rayleigh had been interested in bird flight, and, and, and in his collected works, you'll find papers on, on aviation dating back to the 1880s, where he was really looking at soaring birds and how they managed to use currents. And, and so basically, he was attuned to the, to the aviation ideas. And Langley, well, Langley, as I say, was the, was the, was the uh, secretary of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, and Langley actually... He did experiments on wings using a whirling arm, and he wrote a book, which is still in print. The AIAA have, have reprinted it recently. And this book was reviewed by Rayleigh and Kelvin for a British Association of the Advancement of Science meeting, or whatever it was in, in the 1890s. 
and an argument arose over the validity of Langley's results. Langley was basically saying that his results indicated that it was perfectly possible to build a practical flying machine. Kelvin said it was all nonsense and he'd misinterpreted his, his data. Rayleigh said to him, well, if you're right, why don't you go and build something? And that is exactly what Langley did. So he began work on the problems of heavier-than-air flying machines in 1886. And he approached the problem from a scientific perspective, and he worked with unmanned vehicles. In other words, he worked with small vehicles. And between 1890 and 1896, he worked with six versions of a machine that he called, for reasons that are not entirely clear, uh, an aerodrome. He wasn't very good at Greek, I think, was the, was the implication, and he, he got the words all screwed up. But nevertheless, he, Langley's aerodromes were the vehicles. And on the 6th of May, 1896, he launched aerodrome number five from a houseboat moored on the Potomac River in Washington. That This photograph was taken by Alexander Graham Bell, another well-known scientist, inventor of the telephone, and it was done in public. So Langley and his, his friends were prepared to go and do their experiments in front of anybody and everybody. And in 1896, he produced a machine photographed there, which was effectively the first unpiloted, engine-driven, heavy-than-air vehicle of substantial size. And you can see it's flying all right. You know, there's a photograph of it chugging away. It flew for two minutes, which was the limit of the burner fuel. Uh, it was a steam-powered thing, so, so when the burner stopped, the steam stopped, and down she came. It covered a distance of over a kilometer at an altitude of about 35 meters, and it completed three full circles. And having flown once, they fished it out of the water, cleaned it down, and flew it again. Now, for reasons that I have never understood, this was not somehow heralded as a great breakthrough in aviation. The only thing that Langley did not have was a person in the vehicle. In every other sense, this was a clear demonstration of aeronautics was scientifically practical and all the rest of it. But it hardly warranted a sentence in papers or journals of the time, including the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, it's, there, there, there is no great headline that says, you know, heavier-than-air flight demonstrator or anything like that. Now, the sad part from, from Langley's point of view was that the government asked him to build a bigger version. And, of course, this is where things go wrong. He built the Great Aerodrome, which is effectively a scaled-up version of the thing that, that we saw before. And a few days before the Wright brothers, his Great Aerodrome was launched and it fell to pieces. Now, okay... We know that when you're a pioneer, things don't always go right. But, of course, he was doing this not in secret like the Wright brothers did, where nobody could see what they were doing and they didn't share their ideas. He was doing this in the full public gaze. The press were there, and they took him to the cleaners. They crucified him. And basically, it, it, it finished his career. But up until that point, everything had been going really quite well. And so, I think Langley as an academic who brought aviation into the debate with the likes of Lord Rayleigh and Kelvin and the British Association, 
I think that that was an achievement which which is which is significant, if not to say pivotal, and yet it's completely overlooked. So, having put that one right, of course, the Wright brothers, the the people who who did not uh, use higher education, who used their their practical skills and and their uh, initiative and all the rest of it, wonderful achievement. They had access to all Langley's data. There's a copy of Langley's book on the on the shelf. If you go to Dayton to the to their to their bicycle shop, it's there. So whether they acknowledged it or not, they certainly took the trouble to buy a copy and read it. And so they they were clearly smart enough to 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 read what was available. Okay, they they produced their first flight, not a practical flying machine by any means. In fact, it wasn't until 1908 with their Model A that they really had an aeroplane that you could go and demonstrate as a truly practical, saleable flying machine. And of course, they came across to Europe in 1908 and demonstrated their flying machines. And it was this act that really set the whole uh, ball rolling for for aviation in the UK. So, as a result of lobbying, no doubt, by the Royal Aeronautical Society of Great Britain and probably the Aerial League of the British Empire, uh, both august institutions still there and still doing a sterling service, the British government formed the Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. This was set up in April 1909 by Lord Haldane, and Lord Rayleigh was the president. So that interest that Rayleigh had been given carried through into the Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And this was the point, really, when the whole thing got a proper footing, got official patronage, if you like, and they got the best people they could to start the process running. So, as a graduate of Imperial College, I'm pleased to record that the next place on the scene was Imperial College. In 1909, the Advisory Committee for Aeronautics established lectures in aeronautics for advanced students, by which they would mean postgraduate by today's standards, and they established two aeronautical scholarships, and F.H. Bramwell and W.E.G. Sillick were the first two aeronautical scholarship holders. And just so you know, they worked on the scale effects on propellers. So they were straight into something which was, which was of practical importance. In the same year, Queen Mary College, um, in 1909, known in those days as the East London College, offered public lectures and organized research on the topic of aeronautics. The pioneers here were Dr. A.P. Thurston and Dr. N.A.V. Piercy. Uh, so in 1909, you could go to the Mile End Road and have lectures from uh, the experts of the day, from the likes of Hiram Maxim and from the likes of um, Baden, Major Baden-Powell, who, who'd been president of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and you could start to, to find out what was going on. And Thurston and Piercy established a laboratory where they started to do measurements and started to understand the physics of flows. And this was also under the aegis of the Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. So this committee started the and, and, and encouraged the activities in the higher education system. Then, of course, we have the catalyst of World War I, and, and it's 
as we've seen today with uninhabited air vehicles, everything pedals along quite nicely until the action starts, and then there is pull, there is demand, money is made available, resources are pumped in, and then progress is made. So the flying machine started to evolve into uh, an extremely effective machine. The next higher education development was the Tsarov Chair in Aeronautics at Imperial College in 1919. This was endowed by a chap who called himself Sir Basil Tsarov. He wasn't a Basil, he may have been a Tsarov. And he was an arms dealer and an aviation supporter. And, and depending on your point of view, he was either the most evil man in the world or the greatest benefactor. Um, but uh, Zarov nevertheless supported aviation. He was very keen and, and he, he endowed this chair, which uh, again was started in 1919. The first holder was Sir Richard Glazebrook, who'd been director of the National Physical Laboratory, and it was Glazebrook who created the Department of Aeronautics at Imperial College in 1920. Again, this was still postgraduate and it was still research orientated. In the same year, the Francis Mon Chair in Aeronautics was established at that place, Cambridge. Um, this was uh, an endowment by Emily Mond in memory of her son who had been killed whilst in the RAF serving on the Western Front in 1918. So this was a little more respectable than the Imperial College version. Um, and the first professor was uh, Melville Jones, Bennett Melville Jones later, Sir Bennett Melville Jones and more of Melville Jones later. So in that period then, between 1919 and 1939, there was a period of steady but slow progress, and university work was largely restricted to postgraduate uh, activity. Imperial College moved on in 1923 when Sir Leonard Bairstow was appointed to the Tsarov chair on Glazebrook's retirement. The aeronautics department conducted postgraduate studies still, and because of his own background, these were especially in the mechanics of flight, aeroelasticity, and aircraft stability. Um, Bairstow wrote a book in 1919, which is about four inches thick, which is a complete compendium of everything that they had learned up to that point about uh, the science of aeronautics. And again, if you if you open that book, it's 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 you know a magnificent piece of work and this was the kind of things the kinds of thing that were happening there they were cataloging the progress writing it all down so you could see it and that other people could use it at cambridge melvin melville jones uh, invented the concept of the streamlined aeroplane this was a paper that he wrote in 1929 when the standard aircraft was a biplane with lots of rigging wires and fixed undercarriage and all that kind of thing, very poor performance. And he explained how if you cleaned the aeroplane up, its performance would increase dramatically. And again, this was the, 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 the way of the future. And again, it came out of an, aer an academic thinking about uh, what might be in an ideal world. And before very long, that ideal world was actually the norm. In fact, it was about 20 years from, from writing the streamlined aeroplane when all aeroplanes were streamlined. In fact, it wasn't even 20 years. It was more like 15. So again, these ideas in those days were taken up fairly quickly if they were good ideas. 
Melville Jones also had an airplane and they developed techniques for measuring drag in flight, which were also new and innovative, and it allowed them to get a much better understanding of the performance of real machines at full scale. And, perhaps most significantly, it was Melville Jones who encouraged Frank Whittle when he was a student at Cambridge, because one of Whittle's projects, it may even have been a thesis, was how can we fly above the weather? And it was posing that question to him in an academic environment that actually started him off thinking about the need for very powerful engines, and what did that mean? How could we make a powerful engine? And the, the upshot was the idea of the, of the jet engine. So higher education played an important role in stimulating a, a revolutionary idea. There was one other chair that was established in a UK university between the wars, and this was the Wakefield Chair in Aeronautics. The first, and as far as I can see, the only holder of the Wakefield Chair was Professor W.J. Duncan, the uh, eminent aerodynamicist. I believe that this chair was, was abandoned in, during the war and was never, was never set up afterwards. Nevertheless, Duncan was a very significant figure. Queen Mary College developed the aeronautical laboratory under the leadership of N.A.V. Piercy. Piercy wrote a textbook, which again was, was published for many, many years and formed the basis of, of the education of a great many students because Piercy wanted an undergraduate course. He, he worked on the, the idea of an undergraduate course for many years and I think in, in the late 1930s, around about 38 or 39, he finally got approval from the University of London to award uh, uh, an undergraduate course in aeronautical engineering which would award a Bachelor of Science brackets eng, which, which is what we used to get in the old days for, for, for um, uh, University of London degrees. So it took until the late 30s to, to establish an undergraduate course. And actually... Although the course was offered, by the time it got to 1939, they didn't have any students because the war had started and, and uh, other things were, were, were starting to get in the way. So what were the achievements in the first epoch of, of uh, aviation, the achievements in the context of higher education? Understanding the mechanics of flight and especially the theory of aircraft stability for low-speed flight. This was a major, major step forward. The concept of the streamlined aeroplane, the understanding of the physics of low-speed aerofoils and wings, and the development of empirical and theoretical methods for the design of low-speed aerofoils. So all these things had now been provided, largely coming from the higher education laboratories, the postgraduate work, and uh, in, in many cases links that they had with the, the Royal Aircraft Establishment and especially the National Physical Laboratory. They'd also developed an appreciation of the problem of aeroelasticity, though not necessarily a full understanding of it, uh, an improved understanding of scale effects when you're testing small models in wind tunnels or you're testing propellers, an improved understanding of the wind tunnel interference effects, which were quite serious because they tended to have small wind tunnels and they wanted to put large models in there, the development of concepts for the understanding and modeling of turbulence, early stages, this is... G.I. Taylor, for example, at Cambridge, and experimental and theoretical work on the boundary layer. 
the concept of the boundary layer, which was so important in understanding uh, the, the the relevance of aerodynamic drag and, and how it uh, how it was dependent upon shapes of aerofoils and what have you. We then, of course, had the catalyst of the Second World War, and this was this was uh, the scientific war, if you will, when it was realised that that science was desperately important, and, and basically huge amounts of resource were made available. Time was of the essence, and basically the whole of higher education was uh, billeted in the scientific civil service and made contributions in all sorts of areas. During the Second World War in, in, in 1942, um, Stafford Cripps became, became the Minister of aircraft, aircraft Production and a member of the War Cabinet, and he realised that, that the war effort was, was uh, not being helped by the absence of a proper training for people in aeronautics, that there was too big a gap between the industry that was now working round the clock to produce um, aircraft and the graduates from traditional universities. And they realised that in order to take uh, things forward, they would need specialist bespoke training in a particular area. Now, this was not for use during the war because it was not possible to, to, to actually make that happen whilst everything else was going on. But by 1943, after, after well, El Alamein was 1942, but uh, when General Paulus surrendered the German Sixth Army at Stalingrad in January 43, there was a change in attitude in, in the, at least in the, in the cabinet that they knew that the war would end and it would end in their favour and that they had better start thinking about how to make the most of their position and the industries in which they had invested very heavily. And they started to think about post-war aeronautics. And from a cabinet paper of 1943, this is an extract from uh, Cripps's words. This was submitted to Clement Attlee, who was at that time the... Um, the Lord Privy Seal, better known as the leader of the House of Commons, I think, these days. And this was his, I don't know if you can read it, but I, I'll read it to you. This country must maintain and improve its preeminence in aircraft design and aeronautical engineering. A condition will be that the aircraft industry and civil aviation shall contain a sufficient body of men of the highest technical education capable of relating engineering and operational practice with the latest scientific developments. So that's the need. And this is the solution, a comprehensive and adequately equipped postgraduate school to provide advanced scientific and technical training in, the, in aeronautics and to undertake research. The aim will be to fit selected students whose knowledge of engineering, physics or mathematics is already of university standard for leadership in industry, civil aviation, the crown services, the research institutions and the universities. And that was a proposal to... to um, Atley in September 1943. The response to that was to ask Sir Roy Fedden to produce a report, and Roy Fedden became the architect and champion of the College of Aeronautics. So they had this, this idea at the highest level, they decided what they needed, and they set the whole process in motion. Would that they could do this kind of thing today. I mean, you know, this is serious, serious focus. So, 
the College of Aeronautics, a, a unique concept, um, postgraduate students specifically getting a, a, a highly concentrated and advanced course in, in aeronautical engineering. 15th of October 1946, it opened its doors. Now then, um, let me see. This is, this is Sir Edgar Ludlow Hewitt, who was the first uh, chairman of governors. Ludlow Hewitt had been the head of Bomber Command, and it was Sir Arthur Harris who took over from Ludlow Hewitt. So, so this, is, this had been his position. This is uh, Ernest Relf, who, who was an eminent aerodynamicist from the National Physical Laboratory, who was the first principal. This is Roy Fedden. This is Harold Roxby Cox, latterly known as Lord Kings Norton, um, lately Chancellor of Cranfield University. Who else have we got? There's Melville Jones from Cambridge University. This is Sir Charles Darwin, grandson of the Charles Darwin, head of the, I know John, head of the uh, uh, National Physical Laboratory. For those of you in the audience who, who are my sort of age, there's Alec Young there who was to be the head of Queen Mary College in the 50s, and Geoffrey Lilly standing here, who does not look a day older. I saw him not more than two weeks ago. I mean, you recognize him here, you would know him if he walked in today. And somewhere, I'm being signaled from the audience, is one Harold Kaplan. Whereabouts are you, Harold? Give me a clue. Somewhere at the back. <laughs> Well, we have one of the students who are all. The, I mean, we've got the governors, the staff, and the students all in one picture, and and Harold Kaplan is in that is in that student rank somewhere, and uh, I'm sorry, Harold, I should have found out. I've got a name. I've got a picture somewhere which has all the names for everybody on here, and I've I've just about limited my uh, my knowledge of the people. But you can see that this was a very high-powered operation, although modest and small beginnings. It, a lot of those people went on to do very significant things. So just to recap, they they got their chief their, their leader from the National Physical Laboratory. It was Ernie Ralph. He became the principal. Uh, Duncan they hired from. Um, I guess he'd been at the NPL during the war. I don't think he was he was in Hull. He was the first professor of aerodynamics. Robert Lickley was professor of aircraft design. Robert Lickley had been Sydney Cam's assistant since 1935 and he had gone from biplanes to jet fighters in less than 10 years. And so Lickley knew a little about aircraft design and rapidly moving technology. And we still use Lickley's model for air vehicle design today. So that, that, that course has, has stood the test of time. And as I say, there'll be people in this audience who knew or who were taught by Alec Young and who know and have been taught by Geoffrey Lilly. Back at Imperial College, immediately after the war, Sir Arnold Hall became the Tsarov Professor in 1945. He didn't last very long because he was poached by the Royal Aircraft Establishment and he was moved straight from the Tsarov Chair to be the, the head at Farnborough. And of course, Hall then went on to play a leading role in the Comet uh, accident investigation. So... He was prepared for a career in, in academia. He was an academic. He was taken out. He was drafted into the RAE. He tackled one of the biggest scientific problems that had ever been faced in aviation and, and produced a solution. And then if that wasn't enough, he went off to be chairman of Hawker Siddeley and become one of the UK's most successful businessmen. 
So, so this was an academic who escaped and showed the rest of them how it should be done. He was succeeded by uh, Brian Squire in 1952, and uh, Brian Squire established what is now the, the, the undergraduate courses in aeronautics and, and the activity that they have down the road in, in South Kensington. Very significantly and close to my, my heart were the group that went to Manchester immediately after the war. Sidney Goldstein went from the NPL to be Professor of Applied Mathematics, <clears throat> and he took with him a precocious chap called James Lytill, who was, he was probably only eight years old then, but he had all his degrees and he was already working hard. But, but Lytill and Goldstein were powerhouses of applied mathematics, and they worked on aerofoil theory, particularly high-speed aerofoil theory. And so this was an enormous um, activity. But the pair of them realized that, that mathematics wasn't enough, and so they set up a laboratory, the, the Fluid Motion Laboratory, for which they hired the young Austin Mayer, and I've spelt his name wrong, I think. Um, but nevertheless, they hired Austin Mayer to go and establish the laboratory. And he turned up at Manchester, and he had an old hangar, and he had one assistant. And that's where they started. That was the sum total of the resource. And that turned into a, a spectacularly successful department, which I had the pleasure of, of, of heading uh, during the 80s and early 90s. The Manchester group also had another set of people who figure in the story of aeronautics. Now, these people, with the exception of this one on the end, may be new to you. Max Newman was a pure mathematician who was uh, part of the Bletchley Park code-breaking team. Tom Kilburn and Fred Williams were electrical engineers. And this group, uh, Turing was also uh, a lecturer at, um, at Manchester, and he actually supervised students in the fluid motion lab. So, so this was a very close-knit group. The maths group and the experimental group were basically one and the same team. But this group put together the first stored memory computer at Manchester, and they basically set the ball rolling for UK computing, if not computing outside the UK as well. So this was really the academic team that started the ball in motion. And, and as you can see, there were knighthoods all round, and, and rightly so. <clears throat> Moving to Bristol in 1945, the Bristol Aeroplane Company uh, established the Sir George White chair, and the first holder was Roderick Collar, uh, an expert in, in uh, aeroelastics, another important area which, which, which needed a lot of academic input. Southampton University set up its department in 1950 with Professor Elfin Richards, who had worked with Goldstein at the National Physical Laboratory on the design of aerofoils. Richards, of course, uh, specialized latterly in, in sound, and he was the one who was instrumental in the Institute of Sound and Vibration, as well as the Department of Aeronautics. Glasgow formed its Department of Aeronautics in 1950, when the Meekin chair was established, and the first holder was that guy Duncan again. So he'd moved from Wakefield to Cranfield, and now he went to uh, Glasgow. So, so this was there was a lot of uh, moving around, and these people took their ideas and planted them, planted the seeds in new places. Other notable departments of aeronautical engineering uh, from that 
period, Queens, Belfast, Loughborough, Salford, Bath, Liverpool, and City. I'm sorry, I forgot to put City on there. But, but by 1950, the, the big departments had been formed, and they'd all been formed on the initiative of that uh, post-war government. Aeronautics is where we're going. We've got these problems to solve. Get on and do it, and put the brightest and the best in, and let's see what happens. So, <clears throat> if we now look at, the, at that post-war unit and reassess what contributions they've made, well, at least two alumni of the College of Aeronautics have been chief engineer on Harrier. Uh, Ralph Hooper was uh, the person, I believe, who actually uh, developed the concept originally with Sidney Cam. Ralph Hooper may even have invented it. He was that close to it. And John Fozard was, was perhaps the one who, who got slightly more profile, but he came a little later. He wasn't in the first wave. He was perhaps two years behind, and Fozard was probably the person who, who did most for the Harrier. The Typhoon. There are loads of people from higher education in the UK who've played a role on that. But not necessarily just UK aircraft. Alan Brown, alumnus of the College of Aeronautics, was the chief engineer on the Nighthawk, the F-117. So even though it's an American airplane, and even though it's super secret, that doesn't mean to say that, that people educated in the UK didn't have a, an important role in it. Concorde, of course, was, was thanks to the, the huge efforts of the, the products of these uh, universities, as of the Airbus aircraft, and Boeing, because higher education in the UK has always produced more people than it needed for the home industries. And, and the result is that they've been exported, and wherever they've gone, they've done well. And that includes the Boeing company. We even had a College of Aeronautics person on the space shuttle. When, when North American Rockwell were awarded what was then the biggest contract in history for a flying machine, it was a chap called John Stanford, or Sanford, I beg your pardon, who was in charge of the, of the deal-making. He was also a College of Aeronautics alumni. So the achievements technically in the second epoch, this is, this is very difficult to put on a single slide because behind every bullet there is a massive amount of work. But in essence, all aspects of high-speed flows from airliners to re-entry vehicles, the ability to design aerofoils, in fact any shape, by inverse methods. General boundary layer theory virtually completed, understanding of separated flows, secondary flows of great importance in engine design, unsteady flows, noise, combustion, and a, a good understanding of things structurally, especially nonlinear behavior. All these have come out of university-based activities and have been developed in the, in the main, in the academic domain. But in addition to that, thanks to Max Newman and Freddie Williams and Tom Kilburn, the computer has come along and higher education has been very good in linking the power of the computer to the problems that have been plaguing it over the last century. So the development of computational fluid dynamics as a major tool for use in aircraft design has come mainly through academic activity. The development of finite element methods for structural analysis came from 
Professor Argyris down the road at Imperial in South Kensington. There's no doubt who invented that. And of course, adding the two together and producing a capability to tackle aeroelastic problems of enormous complexity. All this has been the result of that investment and that effort and the, the focus and the encouragement that all those people had. We've also got the development of computer-based flight control systems that can control vehicles that are intrinsically unstable about all three axes, the development of flight safety critical software, the use of new, especially non-metallic materials for aviation use, and major advances in the process of aircraft manufacture itself, which from a business point of view is every bit as important as how well the aeroplane flies. Because if you can't make it for a price that people will pay, then you haven't really got a solution at all. But since aerospace, as it now should be called, is a domain and not a discipline, many of the contributions that I've listed here have not come from aeronautical engineering departments. They've come from all sorts of places. Uh, obviously mathematics, um, electronics departments, electrical engineering, uh, all sorts of domains are now contributing to the aerospace problem. And the role of traditional aeronautical engineering is one which, which needs to be debated. Particularly since we're now facing what might be called the third epoch. In a sense, we, we, we have reached a stage now where as far as building flying machines that are currently in service, we, can, we can't do very much more. I mean, there are always improvements that can be made, but nothing like the kind of steps that, that were, that were uh, asked for in the past. But if we now look ahead, we ask ourselves that, well, right, let's first look back. For the past hundred years, aeronautics has been associated with mechanical engineering. And in most universities, aeronautical engineering is treated as mechanical engineering. Now, this is a huge mistake, because that is not what aeronautical engineering is all about at all. I mean, the College of Aeronautics was a, was a valiant attempt to get over that problem by saying, we're facing a domain, what disciplines do we need in order to face that domain? Now, for all sorts of reasons, that particular experiment has ended now, and, and the place has reverted back to a mechanical engineering department in a university. And I think that's one of the issues that needs to be fought against because the mechanical engineering aspects of aviation are arguably not the most important anymore. And if the task is to build aircraft, then you have to take a broader view of, of the future. So let's call the 21st century the third epoch. What, what are the big issues? Well, just take two. I mean, there may well be more. But one of them is aviation and its environmental impact. So a key question facing thinkers, and hopefully thinkers are in higher education, is how can aviation play a full role in a sustainable world? Not how do we make aviation sustainable. That's for SBAC to sort out. But if you take a bigger picture, you want to know how you make the world sustainable and how aviation can be used to achieve that goal. And then there's the uninhabited air vehicles that are now available because of the technologies that have been developed in the last 20 years. 
These deliver the full range of military and civil aeronautical capability, and this, it's my contention, is the extension to Cayley's vision. This is where Cayley did not anticipate the future very accurately. He did not have this in his list of, of ideas. But since his ideas managed to last for 200 years, I'm not going to hold that against him. But essentially, essentially what we do today is a subset. It may be a small subset, it may be a large subset, but nevertheless it's a subset of what aeronautics can deliver to society. And actually working out what those extra benefits are and what intellectual problems achieving those extra benefits deliver is a major task for thinkers, wherever they may be. So what contribution will higher education make and how is it going to do it? Now, at this point, I'm, I'm asking questions. I'm not going to give you answers because I don't know the answers. But I can see some of the problems that we currently face. And before we get to answers, some of those problems are going to have to be overcome. So are the solutions to the problems posed by these issues, i.e. the issues of aviation and the environment and, the can and uh, UAVs, to be found in traditional departments of mechanical engineering? I don't know, but I doubt whether they are. Are these areas industry-led? Well, if I put my academic's hat firmly on my head, the answer is no. Because industry has an interest, industry has issues, but industry is not necessarily leading the thinking in these areas and on these issues. Are we going to have, in the higher education domain, a divergence of teaching and research because my experience over the last 30 years is that the number of places provided for aeronautical engineering in UK universities has grown quite a lot for the simple reason that the demand by students for those places is very strong indeed. You may hear all kinds of talk about the crisis of engineering. It's not a crisis if you put the word aerospace or aeronautically in front of it. And therefore, the student numbers are still there and therefore it, there's still a lot of pressure to, to, uh, to get places. Over the same period, i.e. over that 30 years, the industry and the UK has changed dramatically and irreversibly. Now again, that's a lecture in its own right, but you can see what I'm driving at. We don't make whole aircraft, we make pieces of aircraft, we're part of, of global supply chains, and essentially the industry doesn't look anything like it looked 20 years ago. Nevertheless, it's still a very exciting and a very profitable and a very important industry. I mean, it has grown in importance and it continues to grow. My only point is it's different. Whereas aeronautical engineering is probably pretty much like it was conceived by NAV Pearcy in 1939 because the time constants in higher education are decades, if not centuries, whereas the time constants in the current commercial world are years, if not months. And so there is an interesting issue here about the needs of the industry, the opportunities thrown up, and the ability of higher education to plug into the opportunities. Universities are under intense pressure, intense, to keep the number of undergraduates high, and this is driven purely by financial need. If you say you want to close down a course that has loads and loads of students hammering on the door, 
you will find that your institution does not welcome this. Not in these difficult times. And so, ironically, the, the, the teaching is, is definitely in tension relative to the, to the research and the needs and, and, and what have you. So, where do today's students come from and where do they go? Well, the ones I see come from all over the world, quite literally. And where do they go? They go back all over the world. You know, we're not, we're not creating a UK capability like we used to. We're feeding a global business with high quality people. And that's a good thing. But it's something that you need to address and have strategies for, recognize that that's the way the world's going, rather than the way the government would have us do, and that is get all your students from distances which are less than a half-crown bus ride away. You know, this idea that the government wants us to look in, look after the local community and all the rest of it, whereas in aeronautics and aerospace, all the pressures are for you to go global. Interesting one to, uh, to try and square. Aerospace research today involves applied mathematics, atmospheric physics and chemistry, control theory, computing, materials, electronics, sensors, data gathering, integration, information technology, communications, artificial intelligence, autonomy, robotics, plus all the traditional disciplines. How on earth do you integrate those under a single domain heading? If that wasn't enough, UK-based aerospace and aviation industries are much more fragmented than they used to be. You now have companies like um, BF Goodridge that used to be Lucas, you have, and, they're, and they're supplying parts to Airbus, they're supplying parts to Boeing. You've got Smiths now belonging to General Electric. They won't talk to anybody from Rolls-Royce because you're now a, a comp competing company. In the old days, it didn't used to be like that. But now the reality is it's fragmentation, it's people looking all over the place. Companies are serving world markets, many in foreign ownership. And if that wasn't bad enough, with the creation of the regions, funding for research has also been fragmented. So not only is the problem all in pieces, but the sources of funding are now all in small pieces. And if you want to try and get the whole thing together so you can do some funded work, it's becoming awfully difficult. And again, last but by no means least, EU research funding rules make life very difficult for universities in the UK. Again, if you take on too much EU work, it is financial suicide because they do not pay enough to cover the true cost. And they know it, but the models for funding academics in France and Germany are very different from the models that we have in the UK and they're not prepared to change the system just to see it does. So we are forced into a dilemma of if, if we do lots of this, we get ourselves into difficulties, we have to take on more undergraduates to pay for it, and it becomes a vicious circle. In the past, academic work was usually the result of an industrial or a national requirement. With these new issues, this need not be the case. And this is where I think academia now has the opportunity to lead in a way that it hasn't done for the best part of a 100 years. It was reasonably straightforward in the past. People said what they wanted, and if you could provide it, they would give you money and support you. And that's how the old model worked. Now, it's a very different ballgame. 
There is a role for leadership. Industry doesn't necessarily ask for the things that academics should be doing. It's up to academics to decide what they should be doing and making their own cases for doing it. And that may not necessarily be a national case, that may be an international case. So basically, this adds up to new ways of working. Multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary working is essential. Collaboration between academic departments and between institutions is highly desirable. And anybody who's worked in academia will know how difficult that is. You know, you may think that's, that's a, a given. No way. Academia, academia needs to be setting the research agenda, not responding to it. And consortia of academic institutions in partnership with industrial consortia towards a common objective, I think will become more the norm. And this industrial consortium may be made up of entirely of SMEs. It doesn't have to involve the big operators, even in the aerospace domain. And in fact, particularly in the UAV world, I think the future lies with consortia of SMEs in some of those highly specialist areas like communications, like information technology, robotics. It doesn't necessarily belong to the company that bashes out the metal and makes the wings. Because the intellectual leadership lies somewhere else now. So in conclusion, over two centuries, academia has made a huge contribution to aeronautics. In fact, an hour isn't enough to do justice to that. It really is mind-blowing when you, when, you, when you start to look at it. Academia has much to offer aerospace in the 21st century, but to achieve its full potential, it must be imaginative, flexible, and ready to adopt new ways of working, and it must be ready to lead again. And on that note, I'll finish. Congratulations, Ian. I mean, a, a tremendous sweep, uh, two centuries of, uh, of human endeavour, and from a gleam in Cayley's eye to an industry that uh, underpins pretty much every aspect of modern life across the whole of the globe. Um, I know that um, Ian relishes questions, uh, possibly also answers if you have any. Rod Kirkby, uh, former project feasibility engineer. Um, there are two things. One you actually touched on, which is there doesn't seem to me to be a link between what the country might need and what the academic institutions are charged with doing. But the other one that I think is important is that <clears throat> the academic institutions need some way of getting their results and findings out to engineers that are going to design things. And I don't know uh, whether that link is established. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I agree that that's, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, and this is the communication challenge. Um, I mean, the aviation and then the environment issue is, is a beautiful example where the debate has been dominated by one side, i.e. the environmentalists, and, and the, uh, the information that has been transferred to the stakeholders is by and large wrong. But it's, it's an impossible, or no, I shouldn't say, there's no such thing as impossible. It's a very, very difficult task to get the balance back again, particularly if you're trying to explain very complicated physical phenomena to people who are not trained in science. And, and the, the ability to deliver a simple, 
but accurate message is is very important indeed. Um, and I don't think, I mean, again, argue with me if you think I'm wrong, that academia actually makes comments often enough. The number of people I know who say, well, you know, I don't get involved in policy, I just keep my head down and do my stuff. Well, if everybody acted like that, then we, we would not make progress. I mean, you know, this is a, there are debates, and we need academia to take bigger roles and be more visible and to try harder. So I agree with you. Um, a comment or two and a couple of questions. Uh, first comment, um, you showed a delightful picture of Sir Fred, or he was Fred then, uh, sitting in his bluebird aeroplane, his hat, hat on the wrong way around. Um, the wheels look a bit odd. Uh, the legend has it, and it may well be a legend, uh, that um, he got the spring from one of the local farm carts, uh, put it on the right way around, but this brought the nose of the aeroplane too high, so he turned it around, but he didn't bother to change the position of the wheels. That's that's legend. Thank you for that, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should have said, sorry, I'm Harry Fraser Mitchell, uh, uh, Hanley Page and Hawks Italy. Yep. Um, you didn't mention Northampton College very much. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is. Perhaps you didn't think it was high enough standard. But in fact, they were about the same uh, sort of time scale as uh, Mile End Road. In fact, there were uh, daggers drawn most of the time, I believe. <laughs> Um, uh, Fred, in fact, taught there in 1909 and uh, used them to do some of his early experiments. Um, but um, they seem to have a slightly different approach in as much as all of their academics um, have had some sort of industrial experience. So my first question is, do you think that academia should spend some time in industry? That's the first question. Okay. Sh shall, I, shall I answer yes. that? you do that. Well, I, I, since I'm somebody who did just that, I, I think it is a good idea. I mean, as you well know, I mean, I worked for Hawker Sidley uh, when you were there, and, and uh, I have never regretted Well, in fact, it, it's quite the opposite. I mean, I think everybody should do it, because it gives you a different perspective, and, and that different perspective is very helpful when you're formulating ideas, and particularly when you're trying to transmit those ideas to others, because understanding uh, their position is is halfway to getting your point across. Did you know that that the reason I didn't mention Northampton College was because Imperial College claim Fred Hanley Page as one of their alumni. He's on their website and they claim he went to Finsbury Park, City and Guilds College. That's perfectly true, he did, but he ah. studied electrical engineering. Oh I see, right, okay. <laughs> well he couldn't have done aeronautical engineering, could he? But okay, but but no, there wasn't anything malicious about Northampton College. I simply couldn't find anything. And uh, let's put the record straight if we if, if we uh, if we can. Thank you. Uh, a couple couple more comments. Firstly, um, the uh, supporting your argument about the role of academia in industry, um, Piercy. I don't know if you know, but uh, Piercy uh, produced the um, wing section for the famous mosquito, for example, mm -hmm. and he he got, he got an award for it. Um, uh, Goldstein uh, had a great deal to do with uh, the high-speed aerodynamics of the Victor, arguably one of the most successful uh, high-speed aircraft. Um, now, H.V. himself was a great exponent of uh, education. Uh, his apprentice scheme was probably one of the best. Um, but he always used to say that um, 
you needed to produce a rounded engineer. Uh, quite what he meant by that, he never really explained, but I think he meant that the engineer was not just an engineer, he also had a lot of interest in other things. For he himself, for instance, was highly interested and very proficient in archaeology. And he felt that every engineer should have uh, a good grounding of uh, those sort of things. Uh, what do you feel about that? Do you feel today's engineers are rounded? Well, I, I feel it's a good thing to be rounded, Harry. I mean, I, 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 but the problem is the, the, the pressure on, on syllabi and what have you is so strong now that, that, that the chances of, of rounding people, in I think the sense that you mean, as part of the formal education process, are really quite difficult to, to achieve. Now, this may be because we delude ourselves that the things that we try and force into people's heads are absolutely necessary when perhaps they're not. Um, you know, there's some, there's, there's some scope for reflection on, on just what people ought to know and what they could pick up later on if, if, if it was necessary. Um, but I mean, the Royal Aeronautical Society is a nice example. I mean, it is not an engineering institution. It is, it is a group of interested people, some of whom are engineers, some of whom are not. Uh, and I think one of the strengths of, of the society is that, is that you can meet the people who are not engineers. And, and it's, so I'm agreeing with you that, that, that a broad experience of many things always makes individuals better at the thing that they do. So I agree. But how you build that into education, well, that's, that's not so easy. Ian, I, I've got at least a, a couple of questions for you. Um, so perhaps if I can try the first one out uh, <laughs> while we see if anybody else has, has any more and we'll take it from there. Um, you talked about uh, Langley working in the open mm. um, and obviously having a very difficult time of it and, and in the end uh, not getting there. Um, and then you referred to the, uh, the way that the rights worked, uh, the, the long gap between first flight um, and the demonstrator version, so so to speak. Yeah. Uh, my recollection being that um, during that period of time, there was an awful lot of speculation about uh, their concern to protect their intellectual property um, and to make sure that their, their patents were properly in, in place and yeah. uh, could be adequately exploited. Um, in my day job, I, I still see issues with intellectual property all the time when it comes to setting up uh, collaborative arrangements. You talked about the importance of collaborative arrangements. Mm. Do you think we've got it right uh, in relation to the way that we actually set about protecting intellectual property these days in order to preserve the ability to, to make money? Um, or do you think the patenting system's got it wrong? Well, it's a good point, isn't it, Mike? I mean, I mean, the, the Wright brothers, would. I mean, the, their motivation was to make money. And they they, they worked in secret because they knew that if they did succeed, secrecy was an important part of the protection process, that they, that they weren't prepared to declare it. But of course, in the end, it destroyed them. Because whilst they were arguing about their um, um, prior claims, everybody else was getting on with it and, and, and overtaking them. I mean, I think that, you know, the tragedy is that, is that often the people who, who do make the first steps never actually benefit. It's mm. usually the second phase who make the money. I mean, like the Handley Pages, the AV Rose, they didn't invent the aeroplane, but they went on to create businesses which, which 
dwarfed. Well, I mean, the Wright brothers never, never succeeded in, in, in forming a business of any kind. But, but the dilemma between the necessary openness for academic work and the necessary secrecy for, <laughs> for intellectual property and commercial exploitation is a difficult one. Mm. But, I mean, this might help. In, in 35 years, I have never known anybody who made a cent out of a patent. Yep. It's a European cent. But, but, you know, and, and it, at the time, they have been convinced that they're going to make millions and, and it becomes so desperately important. And they would have been far better off in most cases publishing their work and having their careers advanced because the peer approval and the recognition of high quality work <laughs> was really what mattered. How many patents did James Lytle take out? How many patents did, did uh, Max Newman take out? Uh, and these are the people you remember and the people who struggled to find patents which never materialized just went into a, a hole. I must confess my same in I have the same impression, but people seem to perpetually need to relearn that. Uh, that it's that a terrible lesson. lesson. And, and when I was at Hawker Sidley, I, I was, I was uh, seconded for two weeks to Tom Jones, who was the patent agent. And I learned exactly what patents were all about. And they're, and they're not about individuals making money. That's the last thing that, they will, that they're there for. They're there for a, a dozen good reasons for the company None of these reasons are of any interest to the individual. And that, that was the fact of it. So. Okay, do we have more from the audience? Huel Davis, a member of the Society. What were the arguments that were used to justify reverting the College of Aeronautics to mechanical? <laughs> That's an awfully good question. It, it was... It was <sighs> okay, this is my personal view, that that the leadership decided that it wanted Cranfield to be a regular university, not a specialist institution with, with a clear aeronautics brand on it. And that really was, was the, the catalyst. It's a great pity, but, you know, that's the way the world works sometimes. And... You know, I have to say that, that, that once that decision was made, the aeronautics activity has diminished very rapidly indeed. Despite all the assurances that, oh, it was all part of a great strategy and it would be wonderful, the, the head count and the activity tells a different story. So, so here's another important thing in, in higher education. It's very difficult to build a high reputation excellent organization. It's very easy to kill it. And we have to learn this lesson as well, that, that you know, it's, it's the old thing about knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Um, the, these things have to be looked after very carefully. I mean, the, the argument about the wind tunnels and things in the UK, you know, that's another interesting idea. That, that the pressure, the financial pressure is to stop using them but then you say, well, hang on a minute, if we want to do science and we want to teach people, we mustn't shut them all. Otherwise, we go into a sort of a fool's paradise where we believe everything that comes out of CFD, which, powerful though it is, it's a fluid that doesn't exist, passing over a body that doesn't exist, using models of physics that we don't fully understand, and yet we believe the answers. 
I, you know, I mean, that's putting it. So you have to be very careful about your 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 legacies and what you do and the lessons that you've learned because it's very easy to snuff it out, and that will be tragic. My name is Harold D'Souza, uh, retired. You very nicely depicted the history of aeronautics, but my observation of that was that it came from very individualistic people with their own specialization, <coughs> fluid mechanics, yeah. uh, aspects of uh, flight and so on. You don't see there two things. One is the idea of a complex organ in the making, which is what aviation is all about. And I think it comes almost from the fundamentals of bird flight that it's not a simple issue. What we are missing today is not an all-rounded person in arts and science. What we are missing today is an all-rounded person in a discipline. And as you pointed out, a long list of things what aviation is today. We are looking for that type of orientation. And I don't think this country is geared for that because academia is too much tied up with its own individualistic contributions rather than that experimental area of different ideas with different people producing something that is complex. What is your comment on that? Thank you. Okay. Uh, I, I, I agree with you to the extent that, that it, it's awfully difficult to see when you're at the beginning of something the important elements. If, if, if that could be done, we could save ourselves an awful lot of time and effort. Having said that, I believe that if you want progress or, or, or an advancement in some area, then you have to tell people that you want it. You have to communicate it so that they know that it's of interest. Um, and, and this is, this is where well, think places like the Royal Aeronautical Society co co come into their own because this is how these messages get out. A, a young person learning skills, mathematics and, and what have you for the first time is, is not complete unless he's been told what problems it would be nice to have a solution to. It's like, like young Frank Whittle being asked about flying above the weather. And, and if you, unless you put those challenges because that's what they are, out there, and sow the seeds in minds that might eventually make the connections and, and, and produce progress. Nothing will happen. Um, I mean, we do need an alternative to the gas turbine, by the way. So if, if you'd like to tell everybody that it'd be very good for the environment if we could stop burning kerosene in these, in these uh, jet engines and, and could we provide another prime mover, please, then we might get somewhere. Might take a long time, but you know the, the 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 modern question is not how do we fly above the weather, but how do we fly without affecting the environment? There's there's Frank Whittle's 21st century question, and we ought to put that kind of challenge out there, not because we expect an answer by next Monday, but because unless you sow the seed, the plant will never grow. 
Uh, so communication of issues, challenges, it, it comes back to this broadness, you know, if, if nobody ever looks up, they're never going to see those challenges, and, and no matter how clever they are, they will never produce any progress on them. But it's a very difficult thing to do, and, and, and it is difficult in academia because all academics are individuals. They may work in a department, but they work for themselves. The chap in the next office is their greatest enemy, is their, is their professional competitor. If you can find somebody in another department to work with, that works very well, because there there's no competition and they can get on handsomely. If you try and work across two institutions, that is almost impossible. Because the institutions then argue about the terms and conditions of the agreement that you're entering into. And it just goes on from there. So, so it's, you know, uh, academia is a group of individuals who find their own way. But if you can throw them questions, challenges, then every now and again you'll get some progress. Mr. President, thank you for this opportunity. I may be the only person in the audience whose picture appeared somewhere on the screen. <laughs> yes, you were. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, congratulate uh, Ian Paul on his masterly survey of 200 years, but there were so many things that you couldn't tell us about. I wondered if I could just illuminate a small area. One was one of the stimuli for the College of Aeronautics in 1943 was the realization by the scientific leaders in this little island that our aviation technology was way, way behind that of the Germans. And uh, a great deal of the apparatus that the College of Aeronautics started with came from Germany. I myself worked on ramjet combustion 99% of my references were German references. So I'm not saying we should copy what has happened in Germany since the days of Bismarck, but we do need to learn as a nation something from the institutional uh, establishments in Europe, and I'm thinking particularly of France. We don't have the equivalent of the École Nationale Supérieure, where academics, where scientists, industrialists, future civil servants all share a common education and can get on with running the country regardless of what these stupid politicians do. And we see examples of it here in England. Uh, for example, the uh, Lord Adonis, the new minister, suddenly announced a massive program for rail transport, regardless of air transport, he seems to think somebody sold him the idea, it's a good idea. And it is a good idea if you neglect the enormous volume of capital spending that has to be provided by the taxpayer as compared with aviation. So I think I'm asking the question, how does academia learn from foreign <coughs> institutions can the Royal Aeronautical Society be a vehicle for creating a new atmosphere and a new perspective for the future? Thank you, President. Okay, that's a good question, isn't it, Mike? Yes. I, I mean, the, an the answer is yes, yes, we can and we must because, you know, globalization has happened and... Uh, <laughs> 
Now, if you want to be a serious player in aerospace, you have to look at the international position. Um, I, I mean, I, I confess that the majority of, of the connections I have are with academics in North America. Um, not very many in Europe. But that may just be me. I mean, it, it depends which areas you're interested in and, and where the, where the, uh, where the action is, to use a phrase. Um, but one of the things that academics do do well is collaborate on an international scale. I mean, that's always been the way that, that it's happened, right back to, to Newton. I mean, he was arguing with Leibniz, you know, and I don't know how they communicated, whether Newton could speak German or Leibniz could speak English, or, I'm not sure, but, but nevertheless, you know, this is, there's a lot of, a lot of history in there. And you're absolutely right. Whether we can learn lessons from the structures of higher education in other countries, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but it's an interesting one. And certainly the, 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 the society is making every effort to, to extend its international profile. I mean, CIAS, ICAS, mm. you know, we're, we're in there and doing things. Um, so we are showing some leadership, and, and I'm sure it will bear fruit eventually. Oh, incidentally, Harold, the, the, um, just going back to 1943, Stafford Cripps asked uh, Melville Jones to do his first report in May 43, and I think the first aerial photographs at Painamunda were in June 43. So they'd made, they'd made this decision before they really got that much information about how far behind they were. I think that, that only served to accelerate the process. But they'd seen the opportunity um, from, a, from a, a wealth creation point of view. And then, of course, it was reinforced by the fact that they suddenly found that they were miles behind. One thing, uh, when uh, Howard's reference to uh, our now friends and colleagues in, in France um, did make me think part of the way through that, um, well, I, I recalled the fact that, of course, we are actually celebrating the um, first channel crossing oh, yeah. by Blériot um, on the 25th of July, I think it is, uh, upcoming. And I did hear a scurrilous rumour um, the last time this was discussed to the effect that... Um, uh, British research in anti-aircraft weapons began the day after he landed. <laughs> I can well believe it. Now, of course, your, your, your talk, um, Ian, gave me an entirely different perspective on this. I, I did actually try to nail down whether or not that, was, that assertion was true. I, you know, I did the usual net search and so on. Tried to track down when we did actually start to research uh, anti-aircraft weapons. Of course, you've now told me that uh, Cayley was concerned that Napoleon could use aviation to bridge the English yeah. Channel in 1806. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So clearly I need to go back a little bit further than I've, I've done uh, uh, so far. Um, anyway, um, I think we should perhaps uh, call it to a, a close there. Um, I believe John Saul very kindly uh, offered um, to uh, propose the vote of thanks um, to Ian. Well, President, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and Ian, uh, from the uh, academic point of view, um, Ian, I, I would just like to say, on behalf of us all, what a fascinating presentation it was, going right through the, uh, the th you, you name them, the epochs of history, and how thoroughly it was covered, and I'm sure 
if we had more time, you could go on and on and on. But your knowledge and understanding of the history, the academic history in uh, the UK is outstanding. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, we will we'll acknowledge that in, in a minute or two when I've uh, just wanted to make one or two comments about the College of Aeronautics and the uh, current uh, Cranfield College of Aeronautics Alumni Association. Um, in Ian's, Ian's day, it was known as the Cranfield Society, which had started after the first course which Harold attended and went on till something like 1995, I think, um, where we changed, no, the year 2000, actually, where we changed from Cranfield Society to Cranfield College of Aeronautics Alumni Association. Um, Ian helped us um, considerably during his time as head of the last head of the College of Aeronautics, and um, we're thankful for that. Um, I have to report that um, the, the uh, Cranfield College of Aeronautics, the association, is now blossoming with the help of the university, which is uh, very, very beneficial to us. It's taken a long time, but it, it's coming, coming for us. Um, and I think that uh, I'd like to say that um, that this uh, we have traditionally um, looked after the um, the speakers and the um, and the uh, following reception for the Henley Page lectures since its inception. And I'm told the first Henley Page um, lecturer was the Duke of Edinburgh in the late 60s. So the, the College of Aeronautics, as it were, has been involved with this lecture for a long time. And I would just like to uh, say again, thank you, Ian, for a wonderful presentation. I won't go into any more depth, but I think it uh, brought back a lot of memories to us and has actually put the, uh, the picture in a very, very firm frame. And I look forward to, hopefully, it's going to be available or published in some fashion so that we can remind ourselves about it. And thank you very much on behalf of everyone. Thank you.